If you have your copy of God's Word this morning, let's turn together to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we are working our way through this book. Over the next few months, we will go verse by verse through this book. And this morning, we find ourselves in verses 19 through 26. Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. If you found your way there, I'm going to invite you to stand with us in honor of the reading of God's Word. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for, the deliverance, for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor to me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again." You can be seated. This morning, as we look at this passage of Scripture, I only have two points. Now, don't get too excited. There's a lot underneath those two points, but I want to talk this morning. I want you to notice here in these two passages, the believer's assurance and the believer's desire. The believer's assurance and the believer's desire. Now, We know from our study through various books in the Bible, we know through even our study thus far in the book of Philippians that the Apostles Paul's life had not been easy. It was not a cakewalk. It was not a tiptoe through the tulips as so many people would like to describe it. In fact, you hear so many people describe the Christian life as one of ease, right? Come to Christ and everything will be better. Come to Christ and your life will get better. Come to Christ and your marriage or your family or your situations will get better. And although the gospel does bring light into those situations and can make improvements, what we understand from the scriptures is that living the Christian life often makes things more profoundly difficult because we find ourselves then at odds with the rest of the world. We find ourselves at variance with with those who may be around us, sometimes even members of our own family who are not maybe believers. So the Apostle Paul's life had been one of difficulty, but the Apostle Paul had been willing to face the ups and the downs, the blessings and the difficulties. He had been willing to lose everything, but then sometimes to gain it all back. He had been willing to go to prison and to be beaten. He had been willing to shipwreck. He said he knew what it was like to abound and to be without. Because the Apostle Paul realized that the firm resolve that he had was everything in his life was about Jesus Christ and nothing else mattered. Everything in his life was a commitment to the gospel. Everything in his life was a commitment to this following after Jesus and doing everything he could to live his life in full and complete obedience to him. As we jump into this passage this morning in verse 19, Paul has just finished up describing to the church at Philippi his joy in the proclamation of the gospel. Paul committed his life that everywhere that he went, he was a faithful proclaimer of the gospel. He walked into a town, he would go to the the place where the people were, which was the synagogue, it would be like today, walking in and finding wherever the people are. You'd go to Walmart, that's where all the people are. And finding people and beginning to tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason Paul went to the synagogue is that's where the people were. 
And he knew that people needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul describes there to the church of Philippi in verses uh, 17 and 18 that there were many who were proclaiming the gospel out of selfish ambition, out of envy, out of strife, out of a desire to hurt him. But Paul said, it doesn't matter to me as long as the gospel is being preached. Because that was Paul's heart. He didn't care whether somebody was trying to get back at him. He didn't care if somebody else was trying to hurt him. He said, the only thing that matters to me is not my own opinion, not my own feelings. The only thing that matters is that the gospel is being faithfully proclaimed. And so now as this thing has been established, this idea has been laid as the foundation that everything about Paul's life was about this proclamation of the gospel. He wants to continue to further encourage the saints at Philippi of his life and where he stood and that he was not worried about what was going to happen, but that he had complete trust in the, he had complete assurance in the deliverance of God and in the providence of God. So again, notice first there the believer's assurance. And there's several subheadings under this that I want you to take a look at because there's a lot of assurance that Paul lays out for us in this passage. And the first is the assurance of the providence of God. He says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. When Paul had wrote to the church at Rome, and uh, he had earlier said that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We talked about that verse last week. It's, it's such a wonderful verse, especially as we live in times where we face difficulties for being Christians, where we face trials and struggles. And this is not new to us in the 21st century. Every Christian who has ever lived on the face of the earth has faced seasons of trial and difficulty and distress. And when we do, we can be tempted to look around and question, well, why is God allowing this to happen? Maybe perhaps you have friends like Job. It's like, well, Job, just curse God and die. Sometimes we have people who tell us those kinds of things, right? Well, this is all your own fault. You, you, you've depended upon God, and look what God has done for you in this situation. But Paul understands and realizes that no matter what we may be facing, and this includes sickness, this includes disease, this includes bankruptcy, this includes failure and job loss, this includes the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, this includes anything that can happen. Everything that happens to us in this world, the Scripture tells us that God can work all things together for good. And we can't wrap our minds around that sometimes. I'm sure some of you are sitting here this morning and you have experienced some type of profound loss or difficulty or pain in your life and you're sitting there wondering, how will it happen And I don't know. But what I do know is that it will happen. That God can work it for the good in your life because this is the promise that He has given to us. To those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. And if you're here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a child of God, this promise applies to you. And so this was the reason that Paul could rejoice in all of his circumstances, no matter what happened, because he knew that no matter what, God was going to work it out for His good. And Paul continued to believe that even though he sat under house arrest in Rome, chained to a guard 24 hours a day, he knew that the present circumstances that he faced would continue to work out for the good of God's purpose. He said that it will eventually turn out for his deliverance. That word deliverance means salvation. Paul's not talking about the salvation from sin to Christ. That had already been accomplished in Christ. It had already been accomplished when Paul had put his faith and trust in Christ, but he's talking about his deliverance from his present circumstances. And Paul didn't know how this was going to happen. 
At this point, Paul had a various number of things in mind. He could have continued to just be in prison. He could be released. He could perhaps be put to death. But Paul knew that no matter what his end was, that he was going to be delivered from his present circumstances and that God was going to be glorified in the end of it. God was allowing Paul to experience these things, to walk through these things, to shape Paul and to make him. Brothers and sisters, oftentimes our faith is tested and tried to make us more pure, to make us more usable for God, to create us and to draft us into the person that God wants us to be. If you've ever seen somebody who works with metal, perhaps making jewelry or making some other type of metal sculpture, you know, you take that metal and you stick it into the fire and you heat it up. And you pull it back out and you shape it while it's hot and you do that over and over again and it fashions it into the thing that the craftsman desires it to be. And God is doing that with our lives. He is shaping us and fashioning us into the person who He wants us to be in order that His gospel and His glory may be visible and proclaimed. If you think back upon your life, you have experienced things in your life, some good, some bad, some there in the middle, but all of those things have shaped you into the person that you are right now, and God will use every one of those things for His glory. Some of us have experienced things that nobody else has experienced maybe, but one day you're going to come across somebody, you're going to be in a conversation with them, and because you've walked through the trials and seasons of life that you have, God will use you to minister to that person in a way that nobody else could. Paul knew that the believers here in Philippi, that the believers in Rome and the believers in all the churches across Asia Minor and Europe, that there was going to be coming a time when they were going to be facing imprisonment, when they were going to be facing trial and difficulty. And Paul knew that his life was going to be a testimony to them that they could stand and endure for the sake of the gospel. And so he was willing to do it because he knew in the end, nothing that could happen to him in this life could take away the only thing that mattered to him. And that was his salvation in Jesus Christ. No matter how hard they beat him, no matter how long they imprisoned him, no matter even if they took his own life, he could not take that away. So Paul was assured by the providence of God that God was working all things out for Paul's good and for God's glory. Secondly, Paul was assured by the power of prayer. Look at what he says there, continuing in verse 19. He says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. What through your prayers? This confidence that Paul has was, was really based on two things. And the first was on the prayers of the church. He had written to the, the other churches, brethren, pray for us. This was his constant request. As he wrote to all the churches, he would ask them, pray for us. Pray for me. Pray for the ministry that is happening. Now, we understand that God does what he wills and when he wills to do it. God is sovereign. Things happen and, and, and operate according to his control and to his standards. But we also understand that God has chosen to work through means. And that one of those means which he works through is prayer. He has given us a way to make our requests known unto him and that we can also be assured that God hears our prayers and that God answers our prayers. So God has told us that we should pray about things. And our praying lines our will up with the will of God. This is one thing that we need to very clearly understand. When we pray, we are not changing God's mind. We are aligning our will up with His. So that when He does what He has already done, designed to do, we understand that it's according and operating to His will and to His purposes. Paul was dependent upon the prayers of the saints, and he expected them to be praying for him. 
As he wrote to the church at Rome, he said, Strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, and that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Paul knew that the success of his ministry, that the success of the ministry of the early church was dependent upon the prayers of the saints. In that passage that I just read in Romans, we see three things that Paul asked them to pray for. Number one was protection. He says, pray to us that we may be rescued from those who are disobedient. He was praying for protection of the ministry because he knew that he could do more and accomplish more if he could escape from those who were trying to persecute him. But he also prayed for the ministry itself. He says that my service may prove acceptable to the saints. Paul desired that the gospel could spread as far and as be as effective as humanly possible. So he said, pray for us as we do the work of the ministry. And in the last part, he prayed for fellowship. He says that we may come by the joy of the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. These were three things that Paul desired for. He desired to be protected. He desired to have the ministry successful, and he desired to have fellowship with the saints. But how did Paul know that the church at Philippi, how did Paul know that the church at Rome or Corinth or the church of Galatia, how did he know that they would be praying? Because this is exactly what Christians are supposed to do. Paul just took it for granted that they were going to be praying because that's what Christians do. They pray. Paul said, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Every time we see Paul saying this, he doesn't say, if, you're, if you enjoy prayer, then you should pray. Well, if you have the gift of prayer, then you should pray. Brothers and sisters, there is not a gift of prayer that is only given to a few individuals. Prayer is something that is given to all of us. And it's something that we should all be doing, as Paul says here, at all times, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We have to be praying for one another. We must be praying for one another. If, if the Apostle Paul, hands down, the, the, we would say the, one of the greatest ministers of the gospel outside of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, if this man who accomplished so much, who preached to so many, who saw the hand of God work through his ministry in such a powerful way, if this man was in constant need of prayer from the saints, how much more so do you think you and I are in constant need of prayer for the saints? If this man was so willing to be praying for the other saints, to be praying for the churches, to be praying for the individual believers, to be praying for the ministry to go forward, how much more so should you and I need to be praying for others, to be praying for the success of the ministry of the church, to be praying for the success of the gospel in Waynesville and in Haywood County? This is what God has called us to do, what He has commanded us to do as believers. We are to pray. We are to pray for one another. We are to pray for the work of the gospel. We can understand from Paul's life and perhaps from our own experience that one of the greatest sources of joy and comfort in the midst of difficulty is to know that our brothers and sisters in Christ are praying for us. To know that they're remembering us in our trials. I can remember a very difficult season of my own life when perhaps I felt more overwhelmed than I had at any other time in my Christian life. 
And I remember sharing my difficulties with a few select people that, that I trusted and that I knew. And then to write back to me either through email or text message and say, hey, I've been praying for you. And just such a simple phrase, I'm praying for you, meant more to me than anything else in the world. It was such an encouragement to my spirit to know that I wasn't forgotten in the trial that I was going through, that other people hadn't just cast me off, but to know that they were continually praying and lifting me up before the throne of God and that God was hearing their prayers alongside of my prayers and understanding that in the midst of all that, God was doing exactly what he purposed to do. Now, it wouldn't have been the way that I had planned it. If God had asked me beforehand, hey, do you want things to turn out this way? I'd have said, no, let's, let's do it a little differently. But now looking back, I see that everything that God did through that situation of life was a betterment for my own life spiritually. The things that he taught me and showed me in the midst of all that was things that I needed to depend more upon him and things that he has used profoundly in my own life and ministry since then. So Paul refers to this assurance of the power of prayer but he also talks about the assurance of the provision of the Spirit. Look at the, second, or the third part of verse 19. Because he says, through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I said that Paul's confidence, I said that Paul's trust here was based firstly upon the prayers of the saints, but it was secondly based upon this provision of the Holy Spirit. Paul knew that everything he needed to endure that came against him in his life would be given to him by the Holy Spirit. This is the glorious news of what God has promised us through the Spirit. Is that we have not just partial provision, but we have full provision. That word that Paul uses there does not mean just a portion. It means everything and an abundance of what you need. He said the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ will be given to me, will be given to you in the midst of these circumstances that we would have everything that we would need. The Holy Spirit is given to us as Christ's fulfillment of His promise to be with us. You remember what He told His disciples. He said, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And in Acts chapter 1, when the church is being sent out, we remember it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the uttermost part of the earth. Paul knew that he could not do any of this in his own strength. Now, Paul was a, was a wise man. Paul was a man who had been trained by the elites of Judaism. Paul was a smart man, but Paul was also understandably a strong man. He was a tent maker. He was a hard worker. He had worked hard all his life. So if we look at the Apostle Paul from his physical characteristics, he's a man who's smart. He's a man who's strong. He's an accomplished person. And by the world's standards, they would say, well, surely through those three things, through being accomplished, through being strong, through being wise, Paul can do anything that he wants to do. But Paul says, I can do nothing depart apart from the power of the Holy Spirit working in me. Because Paul knew that he could use all those characteristics that he had, and he could try to flesh out a ministry built upon self, but ultimately he knew that it would collapse in a heap of rubble. And so Paul says, I'm depending upon your prayers, but ultimately I'm depending upon the power of the provision of the Spirit of God, which is given to us through Jesus Christ. He says, this is what I need. 
He says, I need the Spirit of God working in and through me, working all these things out. So Paul was assured by that. He knew that that Holy Spirit was given to us because God has promised that it comes to every believer. And let me encourage you and remind you this morning that the Holy Spirit is not something that comes to us in stages or steps along the way. When we become a Christian, we receive the Holy Spirit in His fullness and in all power and authority. We don't receive a second blessing, a second indwelling, a later time of the filling of the Holy Spirit. We receive all of the Holy Spirit upon conversion. This is the reason why Paul was so confident in this, because he knew he had the fullness of the Spirit. He knew he had the full power indwelling in him, and because of that, he knew that he could stand. You notice, fourthly with me, the assurance of the promise of God. Look at verse 20. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness. Paul talks about his trust in the promises of God. That phrase, earnest expectation, means to look intently into the distance with an outstretched head. It's the idea of trying to see something ahead of you and and stretching your neck out as far as you can to look. So Paul was hopeful because he knew what the promises of God were, that God would protect and to care for His people, that God would watch over them, and that God had a design for them to, to do exactly what He had called them to do. And what had God called Paul to do? To proclaim the gospel. To live his life in obedience of the proclamation of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this same calling is given to all of us. That no matter what we are do for a living, no matter what our livelihood may be, that we should have this golden desire that first above anything is this desire to be a faithful proclaimer of the gospel. Whether you're a school bus driver, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a plumber, an electrician, a carpenter, a lawyer, a doctor, no matter what your thing may be that God has called you to do in this world, Paul was a tent maker. At times, he went back to making tents. But when Paul was making tents, you know what his number one goal was? His goal was still to be a proclaimer of the gospel. It can be so easy for us because in today's society, we, we are so described and so characterized by what we do for a living. We find so much hope in that. We find so much provenance in that, right? That we think about who we are and we brag about what we do for a living oftentimes. And we view that as, as, as perhaps sometimes the supreme characteristic about who we are as individuals, about what our job is. But Paul is helping us to understand that this trusting in the promise of God meant that Paul, who he was as an individual, was not about what his job was, his making tents or doing anything else, but that he was a faithful minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I have this trust and this earnest expectation to look and to long for, to see God work his promises and his things out in my life. But Paul also says that he would not be put to shame, but he would stand with boldness. Commentators disagree on what Paul meant by being put to shame. And I I think both examples are probably characteristic of Paul's desire. Number one was that he would not be ashamed in his trust in the confidence of God's promises. He says, I can trust so deeply in God's promises, I know that I will never be disappointed. 
I will not be ashamed in believing that he has care for me, that he has watched over me, that he will protect me, and that he will keep me. And this was characteristic of many people throughout the Bible. The psalmist writes, do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. So Paul trusted that God's promises are true and that he will accomplish all things. But Paul also is praying here that he would never act in a way that he would cause shame to the gospel of Christ. Remember where he is. He's in prison. And although Paul stands with boldness and joy, Paul still is a human being in human flesh. And Paul knew his temptations that there might come a day where perhaps because they found a weak moment or because of of the difficulties they put him through, that he might be tempted to deny his very Lord and Savior. And Paul was praying, may I never act in such a way to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Remember, that's what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Paul had this bold confidence and he prayed, may I never act or do anything that would cause shame upon the gospel. Matthew Henry said, the greatest desire of every true Christian is that Christ may be magnified and glorified, that his name may be great and that his kingdom would come. So Paul's prayer here, in the trust in the promises of God that he longs for and looks for, that he would not be put to shame. But he also says here that with all boldness, He's praying for something. He's asking that God would work in such a way in his life that even though he might be tempted, he might be tried, that Satan might try to cause him to question his commitment to Christ, that he would say that with all boldness, this idea of boldness means to preach and to proclaim with truth and to stand upon truth and to not be cowardly or to back down. And we know that Paul did this. We know that because of his willingness to do this, that it had encouraged the saints at Philippi. He had just talked about it a few verses earlier. That because of his imprisonment, because of his courage, and because of his boldness, that others were having more courage to speak the word of God without fear. This past week in Bible school, I talked to the kids one night about this idea. It's like that the gospel is such good news. We should never be ashamed of telling people about it. Because the gospel is so powerful. It's the greatest news that's ever been proclaimed. Other people might think that it's great news to hear that there's peace around the world. Brothers and sisters, if tomorrow they came out and said world peace has been accomplished, that's good news. But you know what? It's never going to last. Because sinful human beings, although they may compromise with one another for a moment, will eventually do what they want to do and pursue self. World peace is not accomplishable without Christ. If tomorrow somebody said, you've won $10 million, that might be good news for a moment. Statistics will tell us that within a few years, it'll all be gone and wasted away. Somebody might tell you something else that's good news, but every every other item of good news that's in this world has its faults, has its failures and will eventually no longer be good news. But the one thing that we have, the one thing that never changes, the one good news that never ceases to be good news is the fact that God has sent His Son to come and to die for sinful humanity. And that if we will put our faith and trust in Him, that He will forgive us of our sins and grant us everlasting life. Paul says, you can stand and you can preach, and I desire to stand and preach that word with boldness. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody and you know you're right and you know they're wrong? 
Now, I'm not just talking about opinion wise, and I'm not necessarily talking about husbands and wives here. I'm just talking about a general disagreement with someone. And you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you're right. In that argument, you have a confidence because you know that you know the truth. In that argument, you have a boldness because you know that you have the truth. And brothers and sisters, in this world, we know the truth. We have a boldness and a confidence that God has given to us, not in our own strength and power, not in our own wisdom and might, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we don't have to cower down and back up. Now, we're going to be told we need to. When we take a stand upon the sanctity of life, when we take a stand upon the sanctity of marriage, what God intended marriage to be, when we take a stand upon holiness and righteousness in this world, we're going to be told that we need to sit down and shut up. We're going to be told that what we believe is antiquated and outdated. But the truth never ceases to be the truth. And if we know the truth, we can stand boldly and confidently and proclaim what God has said to be true because all truth is His truth. Finally, for the believer's assurance, I want you to notice what Paul says in verses 20 and 21 because he says he's assured of the purposes of God. He says, after that I will with all boldness that Christ will even now as always be exalted in my life, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's all-consuming desire for the proclamation of the gospel came from his total love and devotion for Jesus Christ. His desire was to glorify God in all things. He had wrote to the church at Corinth, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Be willing to do whatever it takes to glorify and honor God. He would write again to the church at Corinth. He said, he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul knew that his life was not his own. Paul knew that through his trust and reliance upon Christ that God would be glorified. And this is how Paul wanted to live his life. He says that Christ will always be exalted in my body. He says, whatever happens to me, whatever I go through, however I live, I want God to be glorified and honored in my life. And it's interesting because Paul says, whether by life or by death. And this is the attitude that we all must have when it comes to living a life lived out by the gospel. But this is confusing for 21st century mindsets. How could God be glorified in someone's death? We might say, well, I can understand how God could be glorified in someone's life, right? You look at somebody who has lived their life with obedience to Christ, they've been a faithful teacher or a faithful Sunday school teacher, a faithful pastor, a faithful missionary, a faithful lay person, you know, who everywhere they went, they were always talking about the Scriptures, always talking about their love for the Lord, Ministering to people wherever they went, we see a life that is lived out for the glory and honor of God. But how could God be glorified by someone's death? But we understand that this is exactly the way that the Christian life works. Because our lives are not our own. We've given them over to God. And sometimes God calls people to live rich, long lives up into their 90s, perhaps even to see a century of life. But sometimes... God calls people to live lives that are cut short. 
I think of David Brainerd, the son-in-law of Jonathan Edwards, who went to live his life among the Indians and only lasted a few short months there, ministering there. But his testimony of his willingness, his testimony of his obedience to God, his testimony of faithfulness has long lived the short ministry that he had there on this earth. And because he was willing to be obedient to God, he glorified God even in his death. I think of men like Adonai Judson, who went to the mission field and on the mission field labored faithfully for the gospel. Labeled there for 40 years, but after 14 or 15 years there in India, he only had a small handful of converts to show for his work. And in his time there, he lost children. He lost his wife, multiple wives during the course of his ministry. And at the end of it, he could look back and say, all the glory and the honor goes to God. And sometimes we can't wrap our minds around this, but listen to what the Scripture says. Jesus, when he was speaking to Peter, he said, Now, he said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Because when a believer faces death, we face death differently than the lost world does. We face death differently than someone who's outside of Christ. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But the way that we glorify God, even through death, is that when we come to face death, death does not terrify us as believers. And we can stand boldly and proclaim the truth of who God is and His provisions even as we face that thing which causes the greatest fear in the hearts of sinful men. Because again, our life is not our own. Paul said in the book of Acts, he says, Why are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. If our Lord and Savior was willing to lay down His own life for us, we must be willing even to lay down our very own lives for His honor and His glory and for the proclamation of the good news. Paul was not concerned about what people thought of him. Paul was not concerned about what would happen to him. Paul very clearly says, he says, whatever happens, whether God calls me to live or whether God calls me to die, it makes no matter to me, only that God is glorified in the midst of it. Paul sums it up here in a phrase that is perhaps one of the most familiar passages in Scripture. For me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. What does that mean? William Barclay pointed out seven things that are found in this phrase, the life of Christ. He says Christ has been the beginning of life. What that means is that it is He who gave us life. We exist and are here because Christ has given life to us. He says Christ has been the continuing of life because every day we are kept here on this earth by the providence of God. We are living and breathing in this moment. You woke up this morning with breath in your lungs and with power in your body to come and sit here in this church because God is continuing your life. Thirdly, he said Christ was the end of life. We don't have to fear death because we know what's going to happen to us after we die. And we don't have to fear death because we understand, according to the Scriptures, that God has appointed a day unto us to die. And death will not come for us. Death will not take us before the time which God has providentially declared for us to be. He says Christ was the inspiration of life. As Paul looked at his life, he could see that everything he wanted to live for was designed and inspired by who Jesus was. When Paul looked in the mirror, he didn't want to see himself. He wanted to see Jesus. 
because that's who he wanted to be like. That was his inspiration. That was his hope. But Christ has also given to us the task of life. Everything about who we are to be, everything about what we're to do has been given to us by Christ. He says Christ had given the strength for life because he has given to us the power of the Holy Spirit. And that finally, Christ was the reward of life. Because in the end, his honor and his glory is the reward we receive. The scripture tells us that we will receive crowns for all the things that we're done. But as soon as we give those crowns, we're just going to turn right back around and heap those at the feet of Jesus because he is the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. That's what Paul means to live as Christ. So you can see that for Paul, this living in Christ was an all-consuming desire. And Paul was not weary of life. He only desired to be in complete union with Christ, whether that meant to live or whether that meant to die. But how could dying be gain? He says to live as Christ, and if living in Christ means all of these wonderful attributes, all of these wonderful things, how could dying be gain? And as we think about this question, I want you to consider not just the believer's assurance, but our second point this morning, the believer's desire. And just a few things here. But Paul says that dying is gain. So what's the advantage here? To gain means to be at profit, to to have an advantage over someone else, to to have something that, that somebody else doesn't have. So Paul says that living is Christ, but dying is gain. Matthew Henry said this, he said, death is a great loss to a carnal worldly man, for he loses all his comforts and accomplishments, all of his hopes, But to a good Christian, it is gain, for it is the end of all of his weakness and misery. And the perfection of his comforts and accomplishments of his hopes, it delivers him from all the evils of life and brings him to the possession of his chief good. Living is Christ, and we see all the things that are provided for us there, but dying is gain because finally we put an end to all the things that this world has against us. We put aside the sinful flesh. We put aside the struggle against sickness and disease and death. And we receive all of those wonderful things that God has promised for us. Paul had a desire to be obedient in the ministry that he called him. And so as we look at his desires, number one, Paul had a desire to be purposeful. Look at verse 22. He says, but if I am to live on in the flesh... This will mean fruitful labor to me, and I do not know which to choose. Now, Paul was trying to figure out, what is God's purpose for me? What does God have for me in the midst of this? But no matter what, Paul wanted to be obedient. He says, if I am to live on in the flesh, if death is not what God has called me to, he says, I want to know that this will be fruitful labor. He says, and this will mean fruitful labor for me. Paul wasn't thinking, well, because of how much I've suffered when I get out of prison, then I'll just take a retirement package and go sit on the beach somewhere and collect seashells. He says, I know that if I'm released from prison, that God is not finished with me yet. That God's desire to release me, if that's what happens, that is his sign for my life. I'm not done with you yet, Paul. You need to get back to doing what you were doing. Go back to preaching the gospel. Go back to reaching lost people for the cause of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Paul's life was not his own. 
He wrote to the church at Galatia, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul desired to continue to be purposeful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul had no concept of quitting what God had called him to do. And brothers and sisters, we must have this same mindset as well. We cannot quit in what God has called us to. Just uh, two weeks ago, uh, here in the county, there was a church who was, who was having a camp meeting. And one of the men who was preaching that camp meeting uh, was an older gentleman. I can't remember. I think he was in his 80s, late 80s. Couldn't stand anymore. Had to preach while he was sitting down. But he was continuing to be faithful. He was continuing to do what God had called him to do. He could have quit, right? His health issues, the things that had complications of life. He could have said, you know what? I'm just going to retire and let somebody else do it. But he couldn't because he knew that God wasn't finished with him yet. And in the midst of his sermon last week, this man had a heart attack and passed away. Now, some people might look at that and say, why would God allow that to happen? But as a pastor, I could think of no better place to leave from this earth and go to be the next one than by opening God's Word and right there in the middle of talking about how wonderful God is to just see Him face to face. But he didn't quit. And Paul says, no matter what happens to me, I'm not going to quit. But he has not just a desire to be personal, but Paul also had this desire to actually be with Christ. And this was the crux of Paul's problem. He loved Christ so much that he wanted to be obedient to Him in every way that he could. As long as God wanted him on this earth, he wanted to be here. But on the other hand, Paul loved Jesus so much that he could think of no greater thing than to leave this earth and be with Jesus face to face. And he says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions. And literally what that word means to be hemmed in, under pressure from both sides. It's the idea of two walls being so tightly together that you're having to kind of wedge your way down through there. Paul says, as I look at my life, on one hand, I want to depart and be with Christ. On the other hand, I know that I should stay here to be with you. Paul's ready to depart. He's ready to leave behind the sin and the struggle and the sickness and the pain, the frustration. And the beauty of this passage, when he says that I have the desire to depart, that word depart means the idea of a ship picking up anger, picking up anchor and sailing out to sea. It's such a beautiful picture of what it means to leave this world behind. We can be tempted to look at death as something that's so final. But one of the things that I always say at the funeral of someone who I know to be a believer in Christ is, this is not goodbye forever, but just goodbye for a little while. They're just picking up anchor and sailing on across the sea to be with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because death no longer has power over us. It doesn't cause us fear. The reason that Paul could say that he desires to depart and be with Christ is because he knows that But to be with Christ means the receiving of all the glorious promises that we long for as believers. Now, Paul's wording here also helps to teach us a very important theological truth. Because he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. There are some who describe the idea, the concept of, of soul sleep, that people die and they're somewhere else, but they're not actually with God in this moment. That those who have died before us have not yet went to be with Jesus. 
But the scripture contradicts that in so many places. Paul says here, I desire to depart and to be with Christ immediately in that moment. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? He said, today, not next week, not sometime in the future, today you shall be with me in paradise. Paul told the church at Corinth to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So Paul knew that if God called him to leave this earth behind, if God called him to die, he knew immediately in that moment he would receive his promotion and to be there with his Lord. Paul desired to go and to be with Christ. If it had been left up to Paul, we have to believe he's so confused. He says, I don't know which one to choose. He says, I don't know whether to choose life or to choose death. Now, I want you to think about asking yourself that question this morning. I don't think that very many of us in this room this morning would say, okay, I'm having a struggle on whether to choose life or whether to choose death. Because as human beings, we desire to live. We protect ourselves. It's the reason that we look both ways when we cross the street, right? Because we have self-preservation in mind. We don't want to get hit by a car because we desire to live. But what had so changed in Paul's life that he had this desire? Because Paul realized he could not love this present world too much. Paul's desire to stay here was not because he loved the world. Paul's desire to stay here was because he loved God, and if God still wanted him here, he wanted to remain here. I thought about this question this week. Do we love this present world too much? Does the idea of death cause you fear because of the things that you would lose in this world? Sometimes I think we can be tempted and guilty of loving this present world too much. The things that it offers, the things that it gives to us, the power, the influence, the prestige, the benefits. Paul had left all those things behind. And he says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And to die is gain does not make sense to a sinful world. Now, there are some who desire death in this life. They desire to escape pain. They desire to escape sickness, disease, Despair and failure. We have seen a rise in euthanasia in the last 10 years in different countries around the world where if you have a terminal disease, you can go and you can have someone who basically puts you to sleep and kills you. And people would say, well, I want to do this because of the pain and the suffering I'm going through. They're not desiring to depart to be with their Lord and Savior. They're not desiring to depart because they see the glory and the majesty of who God is and they long to see Him face to face. They're just trying to cover up a pain or a failure or a sickness from this world. And that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about taking his own life to accomplish something. Paul's talking about if it's the Lord's will for me to die for his glory, I'm ready to go because I know that to be with him is much more glorious than anything that this world has to offer. Calvin said that believers do not cease to regard death with horror. We are still struck by the the, the terror of death. But when we turn their eyes to that life which follows death, they easily overcome all dreads by means of that consolation. What he's saying is is that death as human beings still causes us fear, right? But when we look past death to see what's on the other side, then we realize it's not as terrorizing as the rest of the world looks at. Paul desires to be with Christ. He desires to see all those things that God has promised You know, at one point in my Christian life, I struggled with what I would entitle heaven songs. 
You look through and you hear a lot of songs about people singing about heaven. And I remember hearing sometimes somebody criticize the idea. It's like, well, all these people are just, they just want to sit around and sing about heaven. You know, what about singing about the things, other things? It's like, why are we so focused on that? And, and I was tempted to think, well, yeah, it's like maybe we've, we've lost sight of what God is doing here on the earth. And we're just too longing for the future. But the longer I've been in ministry and the more I read the scriptures, the more I understand why we should be doing that. We should sing songs about what heaven's going to look like, longing for that heavenly city. And we can't get so focused on that that we forget what we're doing here. But Paul here is doing this. He's looking and he's longing for that. He says, I know what's to come and I desire to see those things. But still while keeping a commanded focus on what God had called him to in this life. Because to understand what awaits us on the other side when we pick up anchor and sail across that harbor, what does it do? It gives us boldness and confidence to do what God has called us to do here because we do not fear death. A correct understanding of God and who He is and what He has laid out for us gives us that boldness and that confidence. Paul had a desire to be with Christ, but he also had a desire to be obedient. He said, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul was willing to lay aside his strong desire to be with Christ for the sake of the church at Philippi, for the sake of the other churches. He says, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is much better. He says, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul knew what was going to happen. The church at Philippi needed more instruction. They needed to be discipled more in the gospel. Paul knew false teachers were going to arise and that other churches would need him to be there to instruct them in things as well. Paul knew that God was not yet done in his ministry. And for some reason in this moment, as Paul considered all of this, at verse 25, he now says, he says, I am convinced of this. Earlier, he says, I don't know which to choose. I don't know what God's going to do. But by verse 25, as he looks at everything, he realizes that God has not finished with him yet. And he says, convinced of this, knowing what God is going to do, I know I will remain and continue to be with you. His desire was to see them grow. His desire was to be obedient to what God had called him to. And he says that he did this for their progress and joy in the faith. He wanted their lives, their spiritual lives to grow. He wanted their joy in Christ to grow. And finally, I want you to notice of the believer's desires, he had a desire for God to be glorified. Look at verse 26. So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. This is not a prideful statement. When he says your proud confidence in me may abound, he's not talking about uh, uh, them looking at him, but he's talking about that you may look at my life and that you may see God's work in my life, that you may see God's provision and faithfulness in my life. And that it may cause a desire in you to praise and to glorify and to honor God. He says, when you see me again, I don't want you to rejoice in me. I want you to rejoice in Christ who brought me back to you. 
He says, when you see the work of the ministry continuing, I don't want you to rejoice in me. I want you to rejoice in Christ Jesus. As you look at my life, may it be a testimony of God's faithfulness and his ability to do what he desires to do. One commentator said, it is the duty of every Christian so to trust that men will be able to see what Christ can do for the man who has given his life to him. Brothers and sisters, may we live our lives so committed to Christ that others look at us and say, wow, look at what God can do with somebody who is committed to him. Not so we receive all the praise and glory. But let's be honest, if if somebody looks at me, it's like, how could God take a knucklehead like that and use him for his glory and for his kingdom? And it's true. Apostle Paul would say the same thing. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. How could God take someone like me and use him for his glory and his splendor and for the accomplishment of his purposes? Paul says, when you see that, I want you to be confident in Jesus Christ that he can do the same for you. Brothers and sisters, may we hold these assurances to our heart. That is, the Apostle Paul said, we can know that all of these things are working out for our good and for God's glory. I don't know what you're facing this morning. I don't know what difficulties or things you've carried in today. But chances are high that one of you sitting out there this morning, you've got something in your life you feel overwhelmed by. Be encouraged by what God is telling us here. Maybe that's not you this morning, but I can promise you this, there's coming a day when it'll happen. There's coming a day when something will be in your life that you look at it and you feel overwhelmed by, but know that God is still in the midst of your life, still working and operating, still ruling and reigning and working it all out for your good. Be assured by His providence. Be assured by the prayer of your fellow believers. Be assured by the promise and by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the promise of God and by the purposes of God. And I pray that as we are convinced of those things, that these same desires that the Apostle Paul had will be the desires that we have as we seek to live our life in complete obedience to Him. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the instruction that You've given us. And Lord, we pray. Lord, as we read and study Your Word, may we find hope and confidence in these assurances. Lord, I know there are days that I struggle with fear and anxiety, being overwhelmed. But Father, I'm grateful that I can go to your word and see your promises to know that we have no reason to fear. And we'll never have a reason to fear because you have all things in your control. Lord, as the Apostle Paul sat there in prison, uncertain of what was going to happen to him, Lord, if he could speak with such joy and confidence and boldness, Lord, may it be so with us. May we have this ability. Father, grant it to us because we need it. Lord, we are in a world that despises your truth, a world that despises the message of the gospel. But Father, help us to be so confident in who you are that we fear not what this world has to offer to us, that we fear not what this world can do to us, but that we desire to be in complete obedience to you. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.